So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 19, and we're going to start there in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him to yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I want to talk a moment about something in Genesis, um, chapter 15. In Genesis 15, we hear the story of a man named Abraham. God comes to Abraham, Abram at the time, before he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, um, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and I'm going to give you and your wife Sarah a child, which is a big surprise to Abraham because they're very old, and they have not yet been able to conceive of children. And so he says, uh, you and your wife, Sarah, we're gonna get, you're going to get pregnant, you're going to give birth to a child, and through that son that you'll have, you'll have a great nation. And he tells him all these great things about the nation. He says, I'm going to move you to a new place. I'm going to bless you abundantly. I'm going to do a lot through you. And so then Abram begins to have to do what people often do uh, in the Bible, which is wait. And they wait for a number of years. Nothing happens. His wife, Sarah, begins to get impatient. And so she comes to him and she says, Abraham, um, I have a servant girl named Hagar, and uh, she can become one of your wives. I can command her to do that. Uh, You can lay with her, and she can become pregnant, and then she can have a child, and that child can then become my child. I'll just, I'll take the child. Um, She's my servant. She'll have to do this if I say so. And he, uh, Abraham says, she's your servant. Uh, Okay, do what you want with her. Um, So uh, he lays with her, she becomes pregnant, and then immediately, biggest shocker in all of the Bible, Sarah begins to have second thoughts about this. And she starts to resent this woman, strange, who who gets pregnant with this child. Um, And she starts to feel like, you know what, this is gonna bring her glory even though she's gonna end up giving the child to me. What's really interesting about the Hebrew that this is written in, the original language, is that the word that she uses when she's talking to her husband, Abraham, and she says um, that, that through her, I can bear children. That word children, that's the only time in the Old Testament it's ever translated as children. Every other time that Hebrew word is translated, it means to build something. It means like to fortify, to build a structure or a building to construct something big and impressive. Every other time it's used for architecture and in this one instance it's used to describe bearing children. Why? 
Well, because to Sarah, this was about much more than just having uh, some kids. This was about the fact that at this time, uh, everything hinged on whether or not you as a couple, as a family, could have children. If you couldn't have children, you had nothing. So even though they had great wealth, and even though God was going to use them, to Sarah, this was a much bigger deal for reasons that probably weren't very healthy. And so it's no surprise that when Hagar becomes pregnant, Sarah gets upset. She begins to resent. She begins to regret her decision. So she goes to Abraham and she says, here's the deal, I'm having second thoughts. Abraham says, once again, you could say wisely, I'm not sure. He says, once again, she's your servant, so you decide what we do here. And so she goes to Hagar and she says, beat it, get out of here. And so Hagar goes off into the wilderness, alone, pregnant, now alone with nothing, sent away. She goes out in the wilderness and she cries out, and eventually God comes to hear her. And God speaks to Hagar, and he says this to her in Genesis 16. He says, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means the Lord hears. And we then read this in the next verse. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. This is one of the times in the Old Testament that we get a name for God, who God is. Specifically, named by what he does. There's lots of different names given for God in the Old Testament uh, that, that, that reflect an aspect of what he does. If you read about this in most other translations, I'll put it up in the New King James, it says this. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. El Roy, the God who sees. Hagar says that to God in response to his hearing her, finding her in the wilderness and helping her. She simply says, you are the God who sees. Why would it be so hard for us to comprehend this idea? the idea of a God who actually sees us as individuals. Well, for a lot of people, maybe most people, it's a ridiculous thought. The the notion that we live in a universe that is nearly limitless, it seems, immeasurable, we're learning more about it and how big it is all the time, and the notion that whoever created it, if someone created it, something of that size, someone of that power, that they would in any way see us, right? Earth, a tiny speck. Each one of us, a tiny speck on a tiny speck. It seems as unlikely and even impossible by sheer size as me being able to see the little speck of sand on the inside of a grain in a plank of wood that is inside of one of the walls of this church building. It just doesn't seem like it would even be really possible. So for many, believing um, what they read in the Bible pretty much stops right there. A God who sees. And yet, when you think about it, it isn't impossible or even unlikely. The idea that a God being would be able to create all that we see before us, that we see design and we see order, we see intentionality, that that would be created by a being. That being would, by nature, to a certain degree, have to stand outside of his creation. 
Stand outside and yet be connected to it. We also have every reason to believe and to see, and we see around us constantly, that not only would that God create it, but he would stand outside of it in a way that all things were almost relative to him, it seems. Space, as in how big things are and how far apart they are. Time, which itself is relative depending on where you are in the universe, and gravity and lots of things that we don't actually have to get into this morning. And if there is this creator and he stands outside while connected to his creation and the size of things don't matter and the time of things don't matter, we also have every reason to believe that there would be some imprint of this creator on his creation, that we would see evidence of what he is like in that which he's created. And so what are the strongest desires that we all share with one another? What are the things that we have that seem to be so similar from person to person and culture to culture? The things that we so desperately, it seems, need and long for and without which we are incomplete. Because the Bible tells us that the God who created us created us in such a way that we could only be complete in him. Well, each and every one of us longs desperately to be seen, to be validated by simply someone saying, I see you. We use that language. We've talked about this a lot in John. You know, to be seen, to be heard, to be known, right? This matters to us. It validates our very existence, it seems. To be known and to be understood fully and not to be rejected, but to be loved, because uh, I, was talking to, uh, I was talking to a guy once who was describing um, his marriage to me, and he said, he said, my wife is, I think, pretty much the only person who really knows everything about me. And, and then he said, I'm realizing it as I'm saying this to you right now for the first time out loud, she loves me even though she knows everything about me, and that's a pretty big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. Some of us know the incredible pain of being known by someone and being rejected by them, not loved by them. We all want to be seen, we all want to be known, we want to be accepted. And what we see here in the Bible again and again, what we see in Jesus again and again is that God sees you He sees all of you, and I don't just mean the number of you, I mean he sees everything in you, more than you can even see in yourself. God knows more about me than I know about myself. He sees more in me than I want. If if I really care about people knowing the real me, seeing the real me, understanding the real me, if I care so much in my life about just understanding myself, as many of us do, the whole journey of this thing called, that we call life is more than anything else, just trying to understand who we are and then be that person well, well, he knows way better than you're ever gonna figure out. This God who sees you. The Bible's filled with examples of people who God has seen, who God has known, people like Hagar, people who again and again he comes to and simply reminds them of this fact. 
But God doesn't just see you to get to know you. Because part of seeing a person, part of knowing a person, is also knowing their life, knowing what's been done to them. So the same God who sees Hagar in the wilderness also sees what's been done to her. He sees this woman who has been cast out, has nothing, and is now with child. He cares about this injustice that has been done to her. Why? Because this is a part of who he is. He's a God who creates people to be known by them, but he also cares about what is just. There's something about him that's like in all the stuff he's created and all the people he's created, and what that means is, uh, believe it or not, if we look around the world at uh, at all of each other, one of the things that we see there again and again is that we expect that things would be just. And so this God who sees us sees when we're wronged, when we're hurt, when something happens that shouldn't happen. I've never met anybody on earth who doesn't say the word ought, who doesn't say should, who doesn't say this is the way things should be. I was watching a comedian recently and he was talking about abortion. And he said, uh, I'm in favor of, uh, of women having the choice of whether or not they get an abortion. He said, I don't think that guys should be able to decide this. This is not a decision that guys get to talk about or make or weigh in on or anything like that. This is about women, and it is between them and, he says, their doctor and nobody else. And people cheer. And then he says, hang on. He says, I also believe, though, that if that's true, if that's the case, then that men should also have the freedom to decide if they're going to pay for this child, if they're going to raise this child, if they're gonna stick around for this child. He said, you can make one decision for the child, but I get to make the other one, and I'm gonna decide if I wanna stick around and be a dad or if I wanna take off and not do that. And nobody laughed. And he said... That makes a lot of sense to me. If it doesn't make sense to you, then maybe none of this makes any sense. I think it's interesting because uh, the point that he makes is, uh, for example, the idea of, uh, of a man leaving his family, abandoning his family and his children. I've met few people who cheer for that kind of thing. I know lots of different kinds of people from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different value systems. I have yet to tell someone, yeah, he left his family, walked out on his family, he just couldn't do it anymore, he just didn't want that life anymore, and they say, man, poor guy, that sounds tough. That sounds like a hard decision. No. Anybody that's ever heard that that I've been in front of has immediately responded with, how could he? Why? Why is it that liberal and conservative and most any group of people right now will pretty much give you that response. Well, it's easy because, because right now we all agree on that one, for the most part. That's one that the most, majority of people agree on, okay? So we're, we can agree on that one. We don't think it's a good thing when, when men leave their families, right? And what you realize in this is, it seems the relative nature of the way we decide what it means to be wrong, to what it means to be the good guy, or what it means to be the bad guy. I don't know 
You can take any issue and you get to the ultimate end, which is what ought to happen, what should happen. Abortion, the homeless crisis, mass shootings that you see every day. I'll give you another example, uh, one that might, might feel personal to you. If you're a parent, you have adult children, and they come home for Christmas, and your, your daughter comes home, and she's got bruises all over. She says, uh, I got into a fight with my boyfriend, and he, and he hit me. Um, but, but, but hang on, hang on, because I, let me just tell you what we were fighting about, and I think once you hear some of the things that I said that I probably shouldn't have said, and um, once you know that he's been working on this, uh, maybe you'll understand that um, it's not his fault entirely, that it's my fault too. Now, family members at a family Christmas, let's say, would have a variety of responses to the situation. One would say, they would take control. They'd say, all right, well, here's the deal. You're not leaving here, period. You're not leaving. You can't go back. You can't do whatever until you call the police, until you do this thing. We are going to make sure that you start making some good choices. And until you start making some good choices, then you don't get to make choices. And then maybe there's somebody else who goes, well, that seems a little too controlling. That's kind of what the guy seems to be doing too. So, uh, okay. They just talk to her. You say, listen, you deserve better than this. You deserve better than this. You probably don't think that. Maybe that's why you're in the situation that you are. But you do. And no one should be treating anyone this way. And there's no excuse for this kind of behavior. And until you realize that, it's going to keep happening, right? And then maybe while all these people are having the conversation, some other people from the Christmas have snuck out the back door. And they decided, well, we'll just go talk to him, right? Talk to him, right? About what happened. When we talk about things like this, we recognize that there is a way that we believe things ought to be, a way that things should be. I've rarely come across a group of people who have a hard time finding an enemy in another group of people somewhere, identifying those people are the problem, that group is the problem, that, that way of thinking is what's hurting everybody and messing up the world in which we live. Most of our, much of our struggle, it seems, is about figuring out who to blame for why things are the way they are, right? Who do we blame? How can we fix it? How can we change it so that things can get better? And life becomes increasingly complicated the less black and white that seems to be for us. Who the bad guy is and who the good guy is. How exactly we got wronged in the first place. What we know is that God sees each and every one of us. And what that means is that that same God sees each and everything that is done to us. That he sees it all. And that this need for justice, for right, comes from him. And so there's a reason we feel it, which means he probably feels it a lot stronger than we do. And so the question that I have is this, has God shown you in any way at all that he sees you? Because most people I talk to who are in church will say at some point there was this time when God showed me that he sees me, that he hears me, that the God of the universe somehow actually is listening when I'm talking, 
that he actually sees the circumstances of my life, even if they seem meaningless and unimportant to other people. Even if I seem so small in the grand scheme of things, the crazy thing is, he sees me. That's maybe all I know. I was talking to a man after service last week who said to me, I don't go to church, and I came this last week, and I believe now that God brought me here because he had something to say to me. Do you realize what a big statement that is to make? That the God who's created everything has something to say to me because he knows me well enough to do that? And so if he has done anything to show you that, it means a lot. Just like to Hagar, this woman wandering through the wilderness, alone, with no help, it means that God would see her, which is why that is how she would describe him. Who sees a woman like her? Definitely not God. Not in her mind. Well, we then get to the next difficult question. So if God does see and he does hear, is he just observing? Is he just watching? Did he kind of make it and wind it up and say, all right, sit back with some popcorn, we'll see how this goes? Or is he involved? Does he care? Does he actually care? Does he see and care about what's going on? What you see in Hagar and Sarah seems to be that he cares. And this is one of so many countless examples in the Bible that tell us the same thing. The, so many people would think, you know, uh, God would care about Abraham because maybe he's an important person. Maybe he's wealthy and he's got great potential. And the only thing keeping him from being greater is the fact that he couldn't have children. And so God speaks to Abraham. God cares about what happens with Abraham. God cares about what happens with Sarah. And because Hagar is just a slave, a servant, and they can make her do all of these things, then she can even have a child with him, and it wouldn't even actually be her child. It would just get to be Sarah's child. That she is so unimportant and meaningless in the grand scheme of things that no one cares about her. And so when she is sent away into the wilderness alone to raise this child with nothing, she has every reason to believe there's no one who cares. And then God comes and he says to her, you will have a son and this will be his name. And he will also have many, many children. But if he does care, then we are confronted with the ultimate all-time biggest good news, bad news situation. The good news is God cares. He cares about what's happening to you. He cares about what's happening uh, against you that's wrong. He cares about, um, about the things that people have done that have hurt you and the rest of his creation. The bad news is, well, the bad news comes when we start talking about who the bad guys are because the bad guys aren't who you maybe think they are, who you hope they are. God sees you as his child, the bearer of his image, being treated wrong, and most of the time, he sees that there's also no justice for the people who really are wronged. God sees that uh, this person goes unpunished, this thing against you no one even saw or no one cares about. 
And he knows that he wants justice for that thing. He wants that to be made right because that's how his creation was intended to be. So what happens when you come to the realization one day that you are the one to blame? That you're the one doing something wrong? That you're the one who's the cause of the pain and the suffering? What then? One of the weirdest times in parenting is when little kids first have to deal with this idea of doing something wrong that they, they didn't mean to do wrong. It just, it happens at a point. Usually it's when they get really mad at you for getting in trouble about something. They get mad and they go, I didn't mean to do it though. Like, wait a second. So you meant to do all the other stuff? Yes, I meant to do it. I knew I wasn't listening and I didn't listen. I knew I was eating something I shouldn't and I ate so, and I did it. I knew that I wasn't supposed to hit them in the face while you were watching and I hit them in the face while you were watching. Yes, I knew, there, it's out. But I didn't know that time and it's just not fair that you're punishing me. And then begins the incredibly fun process. Lots and lots of conversations that have words in them like misunderstood and my kids like to go to, I'm tired, I'm feeling cranky, I'm hungry, I'm not feeling well. These are all the reasons why I've done things that I didn't really mean to do. And then begins the hard part, the gray area of life, where you realize I'm doing things wrong. I'm doing things that hurt other people. I'm doing things that don't make the world better, but that make it worse. And I'm not even trying to do them. When we see that we are part of the problem, everything sort of changes for us. There's an author named Andy Crouch. He's a Christian author, he's written a number of books. Um, and he says this about himself while talking about the idea of having accountability in his life and just why he has sort of rules that he follows and people that he lets kind of in on everything happening in his life. He says, if you knew the full condition of my heart, my fantasies and grievances, my anxieties and my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others. I cannot be entrusted with power by myself. Certainly not with celebrity and neither can you. This is the most honest admission that I've ever heard from any Christian leader. He's not saying, I'm so good that I won't mess up and that's how you know my ministry's good. And if I do mess up, then oh well, I won't. Which is what many people say. He says, to think for even a second that if you could really see what's going on in my mind and in my heart and in my motives much of the time, you would say I am a danger to myself and to others and I should not be left to myself. So this is where we get to what the Jewish people call a Messiah. The idea that someone has to come and fix this because God's people have continually seen themselves as slaves. We're slaves. We're being forced to live under other people's rule. If God sees us and if God loves us and if he hears us and knows us better than anyone else, then he knows that we're in bondage. He knows we're not living the way we want. He knows we're stuck in a world where things are not going well for us, that we're suffering all the time. What is something people say all the time when they talk about God? They say, in a world full of suffering. They don't say with suffering or occasional suffering. We live in a world full of suffering. 
And in the same way, the Jewish people, constantly looking to be rescued, were looking to a Messiah, somebody who would come, who would finally rescue them. When Jesus came, they thought it would be from the Romans. They were waiting for somebody who would come and finally end this life of suffering that they had to endure because if God cared about his children and if he heard them, then he would finally remove them from this terrible situation. If God can create a universe, he can certainly fix a broken one. And so someone will come. What the Bible says, especially in the Old Testament again and again, is that it describes what happens when people do something wrong. It says that God ultimately has wrath as a form of justice. How is justice served? When someone does something wrong to you, God owes that person wrath. And the Bible says again and again, this one gives you this one picture for how the wrath is gonna be delivered. It's a cup full of wrath that will be poured out on his enemies. It says God's wrath is like a cup that will be poured out on his enemies. That sounds, that I do not want to be under that cup, right? I don't want that cup poured on me. And the Bible talks again and again about what it will look like for God's wrath to pour out on his people, and it talks about the idea of what we call heaven and hell, but heaven and hell in the Bible are much more than just places that you go to, because it tells us, especially in the end of the Bible, that at the end, when God's wrath is being poured out, also, we will come face to face with him, we'll see him, it says, in his glory, it says that again and again, face to face with his glory, and at that time, all will see him, all will know who he is and how perfect he is, and all will desperately want him. And in that point, in that moment, if you're an enemy, if you're the bad guy, then God's wrath will be poured out on you. And you will live forever in separation from God. Forever in separation from a God that you've seen and that you know is real, a God that you've gotten a glimpse of the glory of, now you live forever without him. And what is heaven? It is to live forever with him and his new creation, enjoying him and taking life from his glory. So we see Jesus come, and this is what we've been doing in John, going through the ministry of Jesus. God comes in flesh and blood, and we see it in Jesus. And the religious people at the time are expecting that if anything, that if God were gonna manifest himself, if God were gonna come down, he'd look at them and he'd go, guys, great job, you guys are doing great. I mean, I like the temple, I like all the communities that you've got, I like the extra rules you threw in there just to be safe, I kind of like that, I think that's a good, that's good, that shows me you really care, you're really serious about it, that's good, you know. You're not afraid to push people out if you think it's gonna hurt you, that's good too, that shows me that you care about, well, not them at least, but that's not what happens. Instead of Jesus coming and saying, I'm here to rescue you from the real enemies of my kingdom, the other people, the enemies of my creation, Jesus shows exactly what a God who sees looks like in the flesh. When the God who sees and hears shows up in the flesh, what does he do? He sees everyone, the insane, the destitute, the criminals, the women caught in the act of adultery, 
those who have no idea that they may be at fault for anything, as well as those who are genuinely trying to reach him, but need to be shown that the way they're doing it has been distorted and isn't leading to him, but only religion, it's empty. Jesus comes and he shows that when the police arrive, you may not be the good guy. It's so frustrating if you've ever been in marriage counseling and the marriage counselor breaks the news to you that you can't change this other person, that they probably aren't gonna devote all of their time to doing that for you, and that actually you might need to change some things about yourself. What? Because there are times in relationships where we're like, no, I am absolutely certain that they are wrong. But then if we're honest, we go, you know what? Let's skip the objective stuff. I don't want to live in a world where they're right. And I'm, I'd be willing to walk away from this if it means I can walk away knowing I'm right and they're wrong. But the problem with all of this is that when the Messiah comes, Jesus, and he says, I'm going to deliver you, he says, I'm going to finally rescue you, my people, what we realize is something that we wish weren't true. It is the one thing in the Bible that we would change if we could change anything, and it is this that you can't just ignore the sin that's been done. We often think, if God could create the universe, why can't he change the rules, right? Why can't he bend the rules? Why can't he make it so that, okay, fine, I love all of you? Well, because he loves you. And when something is done to you that makes your life less than what he wants it to be, because you're his child, it fills him with wrath. And he says, because I love you, I'm not going to ignore what they did to you. But justice must be paid. I said a couple weeks ago, if Pastor Matt pulls up next to my car, he slams open his car door into the side of my car every day that he gets to church, every day, if he does it every day, right? There's only a couple ways to handle that situation. One, he pays me some money, fixes my car, and it looks as good as new. And then I park somewhere else, and then it's like it never happened. But he's the one that pays. Or he just says, I'm not gonna pay. I get excited coming to work. Deal with it. And so I park somewhere else, and I don't get it it fixed. And so I'm the one who has to pay. Because I have to drive around with a car that doesn't look nice, You might be like, well, you know, it's already happening. (laughs) And I'm the one that pays for that. Then you go, wait, maybe there's a third way. Maybe you could talk about it a lot in front of other people. So they'll still think less of him. So yeah, he didn't pay with money, but maybe, you know, brings him down a couple notches, you know, in their mind. So yeah, he's still paying, right? Somebody's gonna pay. But then some people go, but I don't really actually respect you for doing that every week. Uh, And so now you're also paying still. In order for something to be forgiven, in order for something to be ignored, which, well, can happen, for it to be forgiven, someone has to pay for it. Someone has to. And our real desire is that our God would just say, you know what, guys, never mind, forget about it, I'm gonna ignore all of it, don't worry about it. But this is not who our God is, and we're grateful for this. And so, longest introduction ever to a sermon. N.T. Wright says this, a New Testament scholar. 
He says he, Jesus, would fight the messianic battle by losing it. The real enemy, after all, was not Rome, but the powers that stood behind human arrogance and violence, powers of evil with which Israel's leaders had fatally colluded. It was time for the evil which had dogged Jesus' footsteps throughout his career. The shrieking maniacs, the conspiring Herodians, the carping Pharisees, the plotting chief priests, the betrayer among his own disciples, the whispering voices within his own soul to gather into one great tidal wave of evil that would crash with full force over his head. You see, as Jesus came and lived in the flesh, what he saw and experienced was the evil isn't just with one group of people. It's permeated everyone, and that even my people have given in to it. And we're going to fight the same fight again and again and again. And the only way to do it is to take this on myself, the only one who doesn't actually deserve God's wrath and to pay for it. And so we read in John 19, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So he's come, the Messiah, the king of the Jews. He's been killed like a criminal. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of criminals. It was made to be a public display. This was what you really, really wanted for the person that you hated. This was what you wished on your worst enemy. And he would pay that price for us. You know, the crucifixion is one of those, oh, that was Matt and Hannah, hold on. The crucifixion is one of those stories that we read again and again and again. We've heard again and again and again, many of us. And it's hard to revisit it each time. And maybe sometimes paying extra attention to the the technicalities of how the crucifixion would have happened and how painful it would have been and the significance of each part. And while those things are important, uh, much of the time, it's the story that we hear again and again. Now, I can tell you guys a great story about my kids and how terrible they are playing shoots and ladders. Um, I've got some of the best stories about that, especially from this last week. But if you were here last week, you heard that story, and if you're like my wife, and the worst part about knowing me is that you're forced to hear the same stories, they're hilarious, but they're the same stories again and again and again every time I see a new group of people or a new person again and again, because I get better, you know, you get better telling it, uh, and it gets really, really old, and it's like, you know what, I've heard this one, so I'm just going to head out and grab a cup of coffee, I'll come back in when you're done, and we'll go on to something I don't yet know. But then there are stories that aren't like that. When I was uh, in college, um, my first year of college, my parents got divorced. Uh, I was the youngest, so when I left, it turned out that their relationship hadn't been going very well for years, but they were just kind of raising my sister and I, not not focusing on it. It it turned out, I found out later, they were living in separate rooms for pretty much the moment that I moved out on, and eventually they split up and they got divorced. 
They were enemies. They were like mortal enemies. They didn't want to talk to each other. They didn't talk to each other for four years. And the first time my parents talked to each other, the first time they saw each other, was at Ellie's and my rehearsal for our wedding, which was great. Yeah, it was awesome. And then they eventually began to tolerate one another as there were more weddings with the kids. And as then eventually, uh, you know, the secret uh, magic silver bullet, uh, grandkids came into the picture and they wanted to be around each other more and more. My parents ended up becoming sort of friends and they began to actually uh, respect and love and care about each other in a way that they had sort of let go of doing for a long time before that. And then we got to start spending holidays together and hanging out together, and it was actually kind of normal, you know? And then one day, my dad, as he, this is exactly the kind of thing my dad does, he just kind of walks out in my sister's backyard while we're all standing around waiting for the turkey to be done at Thanksgiving. He goes, hey, so guys, uh, your mom and I were going to get married. We're going to give it another crack. We're going to give it another shot. We're going to take another crack at it. So anyway, don't worry. You guys don't need to, like, make, change all your plans or whatever about it. But if any of you want to come out, we're going to do it next month. And, uh, you know, Ed, you have to be there because we need you to marry us. But... uh, (laughs) Anybody else? Really, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't change it. And we're like, what? (laughs) And so after 13 years of being divorced, here we go. This is my parents' wedding day, their second wedding day. There's my dad in his tuxedo (laughs) t-shirt. And we all wore tuxedo t-shirts, the grandkids. There was a golden retriever, everything. It was amazing. It was just our family, me and my sister and my brother and all the kids and everything. I love telling this story. I'll tell it again and again and again. Ellie doesn't even really mind hearing it that much. Because it's a story that is incredible and that it has had a profound impact on my life. It gives me hope. Makes me feel good about my family. It reminds me of something really, really good that happened that I had completely given up on expecting, which is for my family to ever be intact again. I could talk all day about the stories of when we adopted our children, about the stories of when um, we, Ellie and I met each other and somehow she, you know, went for this guy. I could, I could, I could talk all day about the, the, the story of, of God bringing, bringing us here to this church and how we worked in that. I could talk about these things again and again and again because they are meaningful in my life because they're a part of my life, and I never want to forget them because there's there's significance to them. When we talk about the crucifixion, so often we focus on the details of it, and we miss the context of it. We miss why it happened, and and we, we have a difficult time when we're honest understanding why it needed to happen in the first place. But when we watch the ministry of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, we see that even though we love the phrase heroes of the Bible, that really there aren't many of those. That, like we talked about last week, Peter didn't do a very good job. I don't know if you can tell, but Abraham didn't start off on a great foot. There's only one hero in the Bible, and that hero's God. That hero's Jesus. And he steps in, and he saves us. I was talking to somebody who was driving on the freeway last week and they saw a billboard that said, Jesus died for your sins. And they were like, it is very hard for me to understand how a person who's not a Christian would care at all about that billboard and what it says. Because without the context of that and understanding it, then you'd go, 
I don't, I'm, what? I don't have sins, I'm not that bad, believe me, I'm not the bad one, I, Jesus, who's, uh, is it even real? So we tell this story again and again. We look at it here in John, and we see that even though it seems crazy that Jesus' ministry that was filled with power would have ended this way, that this is the only way it could have ended. Him saying, I refuse to let the same cycle play out again and again. Why? Because you're my children. And as much as I'd like to point to the house across the street and say it's their fault our family's messed up, they need to change, I'll smite them. He says there is no family across the street. It's all within our house. You're all my children. And the only way to make this right is for me to pay instead. That is the single greatest thing that has ever been done. We're going to take communion after this, and Pastor Matt's going to come up, and he's going to share with you about that and why we do that. But taking communion, the cup, the one that Jesus prayed about in the garden, when he said, God, if it is your will, take this cup from me. This cup of what? This cup of God's wrath. God, I don't want your wrath. I'd like to avoid it if I can, but if there's no other way, then let your will be done. And so we remember, as often as we can, without doing it too often that we don't care, the fact that Jesus chooses to take God's wrath. He takes that cup willingly, and he does it for us to give us life.